Well, Christmas is uh, less than a week away. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe. It's the time when we celebrate the, the birth of Christ. And uh, what I want to do this morning is really think about Christ. Jesus often is called Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name and Christ is his earthly title. Christ essentially means, fundamentally, it means the anointed the anointed one. It's where we get the word christened. Uh, that is set apart or dedicated. Uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary has several uses of this word christened. Um, sometimes a, a baby in a baptismal ceremony is, is described as being christened and given a name. Uh, sometimes this word is used to describe the dedication of a ship as it's, it's christened, it's anointed, right? And they put a big string on the champagne bottle and it clanks against the the front of the ship and breaks apart and and just dedicates the ship to the sea, if you will. I'm not sure how that exactly works. Or sometimes it's a it's a it's a dedication. It's a um, to uh, anointed one who's good at tennis. Right. The, the newspaper christened her as the queen of tennis. Just anointed or or dedicated in the sense of Jesus. He is the one who's the Christ who is who is set apart. In the Bible, the word Christ really means the anointed one, right? the one who is, is coming, anointed for a task. And oftentimes, it's a, it's a great task. It's a, it's a saving task in mind. We think about the a Messiah. An athlete might come to town, the, the rich athlete, and he's going to be the Messiah of the team. He's going to be the savior of the team, the one who's going to take the team to, to new heights. But the, the word Christ, the anointed one, really brings us to the imagery of the anointing of the high priest, Aaron. I'm not sure if you remember that. Leviticus chapter 8 describes the, the time in which Aaron was clothed in his robe. He had a turban on his head. He had the, the breast piece uh, around his chest. And a, and a bull and a ram were sacrificed, the blood being poured on the altar. And Aaron being doused with oil, being anointed with oil that, that came upon his head and upon his turban, and it, it began to drip down even on his beard, even to the edge of his robes. Describe the, the anointed when Aaron was designated for this task. And, and he was to stay seven days in the temple until his ordination was complete. Seven days in the tent, rather. The temple wasn't made at that time. But he, he just set apart and dedicated for this priestly task. That's, that's what Christ is. That's what anointed one is. When we use this word Messiah, we're particularly thinking about the one coming to save, the, the one who's going to establish the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do today and Christmas Eve and then it's going to be whatever, the, the day after Christmas, really focus upon the Messiah. I want to put us into the, the framework of, of the Jews Right, really think about Messiah before he was born, right? Because we're before Christmas time. And, and I want us to think this message about the Jews and what their hopes and longings for the Messiah would be. So we go through Advent season. It is a time in which we really look forward to the, the coming of Jesus. And, and in our hearts, I think it's no better than to, to look back to the Jews um, in those days and think about their situation they were in. They were uh, longing for deliverance as they were being oppressed by the Romans. And I want us to think all, all, about all their hopes and expectations and dreams. And really all of this was hinged upon this Messiah that would come and deliver them, to free them, and how they longed for the, 
the, the Messiah to come and, and rescue them out of the tyranny of the Romans. And I would hold that these Jews long for the Messiah greater than any child longed for the Christmas presents under the Christmas tree. Now, I know some of you kids here today, you're longing for the Christmas presents under the tree. Now, Thatcher, is that you? Longing for the Christmas presents under the tree? Well, there, there, may, there may be at some point. Or Tia, maybe. Yeah, yeah it's got to... Got to happen, right? I, I knew you, Archaia, right? Longing, right? I would say, though, that the Jews long for Messiah far more than any of you children long for Christmas presents. And, um, you know, perhaps the best biblical insight we have about their mindset in those days were what the followers of Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. And these disciples had come to believe in Jesus. They had set their hope on him, and yet he was crucified, killed, and buried. And their hopes were dashed. And their words of disappointment really show their messianic hope that they had in Jesus. It says in Luke 24, verse 21, they said that we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, they're disappointed because they, they thought he did, wasn't the one. This was their messianic hope. We're hoping that he was the one who was the promised one from God. And he was going to come and redeem Israel. But now he's dead. See, because these men on the road to Emmaus were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for one to come as the king who would overthrow the political dominion of the Romans and end the high taxation and lead them into freedom so they might have that Jewish state that they long for, free and clear to worship the Lord as they want underneath the law of Moses. And they envisioned, if you will, another Moses who'd come and redeem them from the slavery that they were experiencing. And thus the words, we'd hope that He was the one to redeem Israel. Just like the old Moses, right? To take us out from this tyranny and bondage. Their words show these disciples were seeking a political Messiah. And this really kind of corresponds with the Pharisees. The Pharisees' hope was this hope. These disciples and followers of Jesus believed much like what the Pharisees did in terms of this political Messiah that would come. It would change the circumstances surrounding Israel for the better. But, but not every Jew was looking for a political Messiah. These disciples happened to be. But, but their view of the hope of the Messiah for the Jews at the time of Jesus before he, he was born is, is a little bit like the Christian denominations. Lots of different varying beliefs. And, and, and there were some. There's a group called the Essenes. The Essenes, how you spell it, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They were an ascetic group of people who, who rejected the temple leadership, withdrew into the wilderness, right, away from the Romans, away from the, the corruption of the religious elite of the day, and sought to live a pure life. Many thought that John the Baptist was an Essene, living a life of self-denial in the desert. And most scholars, when you think about the Essenes, most scholars believe the settlement in Qumran was made up of the Essenes, right? Do you know the story of those of Qumran? They um, hated the establishment, moved into the wilderness down by the Dead Sea, far away from the religious authorities, far away from the Roman authorities. And, and in that community, they focused their effort on studying and preserving the Scriptures, writing them out by hand onto scrolls. And they hid the scrolls in caves in that region. Here's, here's some of the caves that just naturally formed from the, the landmark there in Qumran. And they hid their scrolls in these caves, preserving, trusting that they would be preserved even if the Romans came and overtook them. And because of the dry climate, these scrolls they wrote 
around the time of Jesus, preserved for almost 2,000 years. From the 1940s, they were discovered. They've come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, hidden for almost 2,000 years, and yet discovered. And their discovery has been a crucial testimony to the, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And we could talk a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we're talking about the Messiah today. But it's helpful to kind of put in your mind, right, these, these people who were, uh, were essentially... Um, like these ascetics, really pursuing the Lord. And, and these Essenes then looked for a, a Messiah that wasn't a political former, but was a little more of a spiritual Messiah. One who would lead them in the ways of God, more like a, a teacher than a governor. And uh, in, in this fact, right, even the Essenes, they studied the Scripture, they were anticipating three Messiahs. One who would uh, be a prophet to declare the way of the Lord. One who would be a priest who would bring the people to God. And one would be a prince who would govern over the people of God. So they, they sought these three different aspects of, uh, of the Messiah. And, and in some ways they were right. They just missed that these three were combined in one. Who was Jesus. Prophet, priest, and prince. But not every Jew even sought this spiritual Messiah or political Messiah. There was, there was another group in those days called the Zealots. And they were more like freedom fighters. They, they wanted a military Messiah. They they were they were not only looking for one, but they were zealously trying to overthrow the government by their own force. So not merely looking for someone who would take charge passively. These zealots were really active. Some say that Barabbas was a zealot. Do you remember Barabbas? He was uh, sentenced to die on a cross for insurrection and for murder. Luke twenty three verse twenty five. But Pontius Pilate released him, and so he sought to find favor with the Jews every Passover when he released a prisoner, and, and it's probably that he was released and Jesus died on the very cross that was prepared for Barabbas. An insurrectionist, a, a zealot, that, that, that's, who, that's who these were. And so when we think about Messiah, they were all looking for someone, and, and they had different aspects about what it is that they were we're looking for, but, but though their, their views were different, their hopes were nonetheless the same, hoping and waiting and longing for a Messiah to come. And, and the reason is really simple. It's because of what the Old Testament taught over and over and over and over again, that, that, that there would be one who would come to redeem and rescue and help and lead the people of Israel into better days. And uh, for a time of this morning, in the time of Scripture, what, what I want to do is just look at some passages that prophesy of the coming of the Messiah. Um, there are lots of these in the Old Testament. Um, one, one Jewish historian, Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim, was a historic, he was just a, a reputable scholar. Um, he, he lists over 450 different Old Testament passages looking forward to the Messiah and the time of the Messiah. And, um, but some of his references are kind of tangential or maybe just talking about Messianic times and and things like that. Um, probably a better estimate of the number of Old Testament verses that explicitly identify a person who's coming is more in the area of like 65 verses. We, we potentially go to 65 verses this morning and we would never be able to exhaust those. So I've merely picked out four of them from various parts of the Scripture. And what I want to do is just, just go from one to another to another to another. Again, just to hope to put us in that place where the Jews were in terms of expecting this Messiah to come. That just we think about Christmas coming, we might put ourselves there. And then on Christmas Eve, 
we're going to look at the fact that Messiah is here. And then after Christmas, on that next day, we're going to look about the fact that Messiah has come. So it's kind of what we're doing around Christmas. And so the time of my message this morning is Messiah is coming. I want to focus because Christmas isn't here yet. But we know that Christmas is coming on Saturday, right? The, the day that Walmart closes and the day that uh, families gather together, right? We, we know that's coming, but the Jews didn't know when their Messiah was coming. But they were awaiting it, and rightly so, because the Old Testament foretold that day. So I, I want to just ask you, when, when's the first reference in all the Bible to the Messiah? I think some of you might know this. When's the first reference? What do you think, Ruthie? You got one? Genesis where in Genesis? First book of the Bible, any idea? Genesis 3.15, exactly. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3.15, just right there in the front, just two, three, four pages in. Genesis 3 is the first prophecy, anticipation of the Messiah. And these are the kind of verses that the, the Jews read. And, and they looked at and they said, this is, this is the one we're looking for. Genesis 3, of course, tells the story of the sin of Adam and Eve that plunged the human race into sins called the fall, the, the fall of mankind. God created a world, plants, animals. Adam and Eve, he placed them in a garden, a perfect place, perfect people in a perfect place, just one task, right? To, to keep, take charge of the garden and, and eat freely of any tree that's in the, the midst of the garden. But God said, Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And mankind fell from a state of innocence to a state of sin. And with the fall, catch it, here comes a need for a Messiah. A need for one to come and to save. <clears throat> That's what we see in verse 15. Actually, it's in the context of, of a curse. Verse 14 contains the curse. And verse 15 contains the, the first messianic promise, even as a curse. So let's read Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent was cursed to dwell in his body, verse 14. The serpent was cursed to ultimate defeat in verse 15. But the one who would, who would defeat the serpent was the Messiah. The serpent would merely bruise the Messiah's heel, but the Messiah would bruise the head of the serpent, right? Delivering a death blow to Satan himself. That's a promise of, that Paul relied upon in Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And there's an allusion back here to Genesis 3, verse 15. It was the hope of all the Jews that the Messiah would come and he would defeat the devil and lead them into prosperity and, and joy. Now, I trust that you see here in verse 15 that there's no mention of the word Messiah in this verse. There's, there's no, it's, it's the seed, it's the offspring is what's mentioned. But it mentions the whole concept of, of, of the Messiah. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, um, doesn't in the ESV translation, the Messiah doesn't appear at all. Not even once in the Old Testament. Uh, the NASV, it occurs only once in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, where it prophesies of the anointed one 
who will come to deliver Israel. That is the, the Messiah. And yet this concept of this one coming is going to save and deliver and help is all over the Old Testament, which ought to help you a little bit in how dangerous word studies are. You might think if you do a word study on Messiah and just look at the Old Testament, it's not going to be there. But it's all over the Old Testament because it's more conceptual of, of this one who's coming, this offspring of the woman who's going to rise up and defeat a serpent. Now, it's interesting here to find us an offspring that is a human, a man, who's going to come and destroy the works of Satan. And yet we will also see, even later in my message, that this is God as well. So it's God in the flesh. Even if you put the Old Testament together, you see, yes, it's God who's the Messiah, but yes, he's a man, he's the Messiah the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, this promise of Genesis 3.15 was, was on the mind of Adam and Eve. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 4. And, and look what Eve said after she gave birth to Cain. In chapter 4, verse 1, she says, I have gotten, kana is the, the word, I've, I've, I've obtained a man with the help of the Lord. That's why she called him Cain. But here's the perspective that she's like, I've gotten this man now from the Lord. One commentator said this, her acknowledging God's help makes it look as though she were hopeful that the promise of a seed to crush the head of the serpent might find its fulfillment in this son. So it may be even that Eve thought that Cain was this very offspring that's going to come and, and crush Satan. Like she didn't have this big history perspective. It may have been. However, obviously that didn't happen with Cain. He turned out to be a curse rather than a blessing. And rather than crushing Satan, he crushed his brother Abel, killing him. But that doesn't negate the first messianic promise. There would be one who would come in a future day to destroy the works of the devil. That's what um, Darren read for us. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right here, Genesis 3.15. And that's what we celebrate Christmas season. We, we, we celebrate the appearing of the Son of God who came and reversed the curse. No longer do we need to die for our sins, but we can look to Jesus and find our life in Him because He destroyed the works of the devil. And so we can live in Him. Well, Genesis 3.15, the, the first of many messianic prophecies. Well, let's look at another passage. I'm not going to have you guess this one because you'd be guessing one out of 65, right? You, but we're just going to choose one, right? Deuteronomy 18.15. So you can turn over there. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And this comes in the context of Moses giving his last sermons to the people of Israel. And God had raised up Moses as, as a mighty man to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God was with him in a mighty way. You think about what God did with Moses. It's amazing. He brought these ten plagues upon Egypt. At, at, at his word, the plagues came. And at his word, the plagues went away. Exactly as God had told him. He was God's mouthpiece. In fact, even he was a prophet, if you will. Like he was the one that spoke and predicted and prophesied and exhorted. In fact, even maybe in, in many ways, he was the, the prophet of prophets. Because he got to speak with God face to face. He went up the mountain and, and spoke to God face to face. And when he came down from the mountain, you remember the story there about his, his face was glowing. And the people of Israel said, no, cover your face because we don't want to see the glory fade away. As he was right there with God. 
bringing Israel the word of God. In fact, of all the writers in the Bible, he wrote the most. He wrote the whole Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. The words that became the law of the land in Israel, telling people how it is they ought to live. And the promise here in Deuteronomy 18 is of another prophet that's coming. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is he to him you shall listen. As great as Moses was, Moses knew of another prophet that was coming that was greater. Listening to him is what you should do. And, and this is why the Essenes were looking for a Messiah to be a prophet. Because they understood that Moses told them to anticipate such a one would be a prophet who, who leads the people spiritually, who directs people in what's right and wrong. And Moses said that you shall listen to him. A few verses later, look at verse, um, verse 17, uh, verse 18, right? The Lord says, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. That is, he's going to be Jewish. The, the Jewish prophet, the Messiah is going to be. And I will put my words in his mouth and he'll, he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So, such is the importance of following the ways of this prophet that is coming. Right When this prophet arises, you better listen to him because he's going to speak God's commandments. And if you don't obey his commandments, God's going to require it of you. Right? You're going to face the judgment for not following the ways of Jesus. And, and, and this is what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah. They, they were looking for a Messiah to come, to lead them and guide them. Now, some thought just militarily that's going to happen. Some thought in the government, but some thought just spiritually. Whatever it was, there's a prophet who's going to guide them. And this, of course, was true of Jesus. The whole fact about God giving him words that he spoke. Listen to how Jesus described himself in John chapter 12, verse 44 and following. These were his last public words. In John, we read John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, almost in, in desperation, the last thing he said. He said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. You just see his, his plea, like, I've come from God. In fact, I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And, and don't turn away. I, I've given you light, so you might believe in me and might trust. And he says in John twelve forty nine, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I mean, this is almost exactly what Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 says. I raise up, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was this Messiah who spoke what God commanded to speak with him. He spoke words of eternal life. He spoke words that are to be obeyed and trusted and believed. And really, that's our hope this Christmas season, is that Jesus brought words of eternal life. That we might believe in Him, might find the joy of rest in Him. So my, my call is really, do you believe in Jesus? 
Are you trusting His words? Do you believe He's the Messiah? The Jews were longing, looking for this Jesus, for this Messiah who would come. And sadly, they didn't. And Jesus spoke of the consequences of not believing. He said, John 12, 47, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. You believe in him and have life. You fail to believe and you'll be judged. Because that's a prophet. I mean, that's what prophets did. They, they cast out the words. Follow God. Re- repent and find forgiveness. Or be judged for your rebellion. It's the message of the prophets. And that's the message of Jesus. The message of Moses. He is the coming Messiah. He is the one that Jews were looking for. He's the one in whom we must place our hope as the great prophet. Well, let's look at another messianic promise. This time we've seen Genesis. We've pulled from the Pentateuch. And, and now I'm just going to pull from the Psalms. Psalm 132, verse 11. So you can turn over there to Psalm 132. And again, I'm just trying to just span the spectrum of the Old Testament. A little bit as I've challenged you in recent days to master the Bible Right? Just kind of know the, know the flow of the Scriptures and know how it works and know what's in some of these key passages. Here's Psalm 132, one of the Song of Ascents. In fact, it's one of the great psalms that Israel would sing as they went up to Jerusalem to worship three times a year as they were commanded in Exodus 23. This is the longest of the, the 15 songs of ascent. It, it centers on David. And, and we're going to focus on verse 11, but it, it would be good for us to consider the verses from the beginning here in Psalm 132 verse 1. They're singing now. And and, and this is the chorus, just like we sang, O love of God, right? Of the Father's love begotten. All all, all love's divine love, all love's excelling, or however that goes. Love divine, all love's excelling. And this is what they would have been singing. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And how appropriate these words are for the traveling pilgrims to go up to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem, the city of David, the the, the place that that David desired to establish a permanent place of worship for the people of Israel, right? This this temple that he wanted to build, this house he wanted to build. 2 Samuel 7 is a passage you want to go to 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 read about that. It's a place that Israel went to worship the Lord where they all would meet for God. And they're just saying, hey, remember David, how he wanted this place. And, and, and here we are, and now we're going, verse 7, to this, to this dwelling place. Right? It's really an invitation now for, forever. We're going there, and then in verse 8 and following, they invite God to come and meet with them as well. Verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. 
For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And here he is. They, they want to go where God is, where, where God rests, where his, his glory dwells, right there in the Holy of Holies. And, and just picturing even here in verse 9, the priests clothed in righteousness, ready for the sacrifices, so they might come and offer the sacrifices and be made righteous. Find forgiveness there. Let your saints shout for joy. There's just the, the joy of worship. They said, for the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face, here it is, of your anointed one, that is, of your Christ, of your Messiah. It's a good plea, right, for God to help and receive and accept their Messiah. He's described further in verse 11, and here's what we're focusing on. He says this. He says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath, one from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And this, by the way, is why the zealots sought a military Messiah. Because the throne of David is the throne of a king, and the king is the sovereign power of the land. And so the zealots thought the Messiah would come with military might and a military leader, and they're going to take someone in a coup and place him on the throne, just as God had promised in anticipation. It's interesting. It's not so much that the zealots were wrong. It's just their, their timing was wrong. They didn't realize that, that these messianic promises are, 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 there's a first coming to them and a second coming to them. And we live right between them. <clears throat> we live after the first coming and before the second coming. They live before the first and second coming. And, and so they saw this ruling, reigning might of the power of the Messiah. Another psalm would be Psalm 110, which, which speaks about God sitting at the, Jesus, the anointed one, right? The Christ sitting at the right hand of God, just waiting until God makes all his enemies his footstool, dominating them and ruling over them in a military fashion, with military might, yes, for sure. But that's to come because the first time he came to suffer, the glory came afterwards. His rule and reign will come later. First time he came as a lamb, next time he'll come as a lion. But he will come. And these zealots right, were, were anticipating this time where, where this military Messiah would, would actually come and rule and reign. It's the promise of verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. And this just means that, that the Messiah is not only going to be Jewish, but it's also going to be one of the sons of David. Here's from the line of the tribe of Judah. One is going to seat and be established on the throne. That, that promise is also 2 Samuel 7 as well. And, and God, <clears throat> who has promised with his oath, this sure oath, he will not turn back. He will indeed set this one on the throne. This is a, <clears throat> a messianic promise, if you will. And so the Jews were looking for that day when David would come and rule on David's throne. The son of David would come and rule on David's throne and then the psalm continues. It would be good for us just to read it. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And, and, and there it is. Revelation speaks about that, that we will be priests to our God. That we will forever reign. Anyone who believes and trusts in Christ will be, will be fellow inheritors of the kingdom, right, with Jesus Christ. And, and there's a sense where we will reign with Him, seat us with Him. Ephesians 2 says that just as Christ has been seated, we also are seated with Him. That's, that's what's alluded to here. If we're obedient, if we keep the covenant, if we're trusting in the Lord. And then he continues just about God's heart for this place. The Lord has chosen Zion. 
He has desired it for his dwelling place. That is Jerusalem. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will close with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And, and so here is just like the second coming of Jesus. For which, by the way, we think about Messiah's coming. He is coming a second time to rule and to reign. And all these things will be true as Christ will come and reign in the new Jerusalem. The chosen Zion which God has loved. Well, Messiah is, is coming. One final passage. Just I picked four passages we've seen from the Pentateuch. We've seen from the Psalms. What might we see from next? What are we? Uh, Gospels is New Testament, so we're talking about Old Testament. What's a, a good genre we should look from? The prophets, maybe, right? The, the Psalms, what Moses says, what the Psalms say, what the prophets say. Let's consider Isaiah 9, verse 6. <clears throat> this is perhaps one of the most familiar of all the, the Messianic Psalms, and the Messianic verses that, that we're going to look at even this morning. Right? Because even you might think about these words and you might start singing them in your mind because Handel's Messiah has taken these words and set them to music. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Come on with me. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Maybe it goes on there. I'm not sure. Right? But this is over and over again. We hear this at Christmas time. In fact, because it makes sense. Because this is talking about this child that's born. So, again, it talks about the humanity of the Messiah. There's going to be this, this child that's born, and so that as the Jews anticipate this Messiah, they didn't expect an angel to come down. They were expecting this son to be born. He put all together, born a Jew, born of the line of David, born of kingly descent. And in fact, he's going to come. If you look here, he is going to rule and reign. The government shall be upon his shoulder. If you look at verse 7, it says, The increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. So here we just see this, this government that's this political leader that's growing big. I mean, the Pharisees are right. Expecting this political leader to come on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. And the promise is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this Messiah is going to come. He's going to be this born a son to us. Will rule and reign someday. And, and there will be this government with Jesus on the throne that we can look forward to. And this government is going to increase and increase. And there's going to be peace. It's going to be a wonderful time. This child is born. But that's sort of in the second coming. The first coming is this son who is born of us. And did you notice his names? Just let's consider each of these names. If they anticipated, right, what this Messiah would be like. And we can look back and we can see that the Messiah was like this. We see him as a, as a wonderful counselor. That he is the one that you can go to with any of your counseling needs. 
with any, any questions, any desires, any confusions, right? He is the one to whom we go. That's why we pray when confused, right? And, and even James, right? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. The great counselor who is Jesus will give to us wisdom. He is secondly here, mighty God. Here is a son who's born, he's human, and yet he is divine. This is the incarnation, God becoming flesh, both those things together, that even a child is going to be born to us, and he's going to be the mighty God. It's the incarnation, just right there. And then, look at this, the everlasting Father. You're like, whoa, they're starting to blow your mind, because here is this, this son becoming an everlasting father of many, but also perhaps even allusions to the Trinity. That, that he's the father who's been, been father and always father, and, and yet he's Jesus, he's, he's the Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The father's not the son, the son is not the spirit, but yet the father is God, and the son is God, and the spirit is God, and how that all mixes together, I don't know, but... Here we see even the Son being called the everlasting Father. And then finally and ultimately and best of all, perhaps He is the Prince of Peace. It's what Jesus does when He comes. He's going to bring peace to the world when all is well. That's what we can really ultimately look, look forward to. The fact that Messiah is coming and He's bringing peace to the world. But bringing peace particularly to those who are believing and trusting in Him. Those, those who have seen, like you carry out his life, right? And this is just talking about the birth of Messiah coming, but eventually he's going to come and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. But it's by his death that we are healed. We can read about that in Isaiah 53, about how he, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And that's how he brings peace, by, by bearing our sins for us and breaking down hostility between us and God, and smoothing that road between God and between others as well. And so that's what we look for. We look at the, for the Prince of Peace. Just want you to think about it. As you think about Christmas time, kids, especially as you think about Christmas coming Saturday, just think about the Jews. We're anticipating this time in which the Messiah would come and, and be all these things to all, all the people. Yes, He would come and He would reverse the curse that uh, came upon Adam and Eve, and that He would be the prophets of prophets that we need to look to, that, to listen to, and that he would be of the line of David set upon his throne forever to bring this government that will be peaceful to no end. Now, my message this morning, I picked just four verses to kind of give you a flavor of what Jesus is, the Messiah's coming, what the Jews hope for. We, we could have pulled many more, uh, but we just pulled four, and I trust that they've been edifying to you and to your hearts. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, the Jews sought for and anticipated this Messiah to come. <clears throat> and as we, in some regards, are anticipating Christmas to come, that day when this child was born to us, this son was given to us, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that he is really the fulfillment of, of all these promises in the Old Testament, that they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, he came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those right, who were under the curse of the law. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus were exactly right, that he was the one to redeem. They were hoping that he would redeem Israel. And indeed, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that this son does redeem us from our sins if we but look to him. And so, Father, I would pray that your spirit would 
would come and convict our hearts of sin and draw us to Jesus, God, in whom there is hope. There's no hope anywhere else. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.